day Tired of biting my tongue, I say what I gotta say My, my sweetest dream was to live free with the brigade But I'm from America, they soon take dreams away Feel like I'm in a Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Black Diplomats Where everyone, and I mean everyone, can be a diplomat and talk about the world That includes you I'm your host, Terrell Starr, as usual. This week, I'm talking about South Africa's reported hesitancy to host Russian President Vladimir Putin at August's BRICS summit and GOP House Leader Kevin McCarthy's reassurance of the Republican support for Ukraine. And we have a very special guest with us, Rula Jabril, who will talk about all things Palestine and Israel. And we're going to talk about my recent visit to the Holy Land and some of our online trolls who call me out for calling out Israel's apartheid regime against the Palestinian people. Oh, and I forget, we're going to definitely talk about what Kamala Harris is up to. President Kamala Harris, well, excuse me, I'm getting a, a bit ahead of myself. Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, we're going to talk about basically, you know, um, the excellent comedian, uh, Roy Wood Jr.'s uh, assessment of how people are hating on uh, Madam Vice President. So this is going to be a pretty, pretty interesting show. So um, we're going to jump right into it. So some interesting news out of South Africa and the country leadership's dilemma to host Russian President Vladimir Putin's anticipated trip to the country in August. So here's what's going on. If Putin attends the BRICS summit in South Africa, uh, the country probably have no choice but to arrest him. And that's based on an outstanding international criminal court warrant that's out there accusing him of war crimes uh, that's taking place in Ukraine and war crimes that the Hague is making him personally responsible for. So uh, the Sunday Times out of South Africa reports that authorities are trying to convince the, the Kremlin to basically ask if Putin can attend the conference virtually. South African officials are in talks basically uh, to see if that is possible. Uh, and an official from the South African government said that they, are, they pretty much have no option but to arrest Putin if he touches down and if he comes here, I, and I quote this, we'll be forced to detain him. So here's some context, y'all, in case y'all understand, y'all don't understand BRICS, which is B-R-I-C-S. This is an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Each nation chairs the annual summit each year with South Africa taking the helm this year in 2023. This summit, which is attended by each head of state, uh, is really designed to discuss the issues of mutual interest that includes politics, economics, and trade cooperation. And so these are the nations that are expected to be leading economies by 2050. South Africa, for some more context, has drawn the air of many of Ukraine's supporters at the UN in particular, for being non-committal for calling out Russia over its war crimes in Ukraine that have tallied into the tens of thousands since the Kremlin invaded the country in 2022. Indeed, Russia is a genocidal state and 
I'd love nothing more than to see Putin at The Hague and sentenced to prison for life for all of the genocide that he's perpetrating. But here's some important context that people need to know. I think a lot of supporters of Ukraine tend not to understand that South Africa doesn't feel any loyalty to Ukraine or the rest of Europe. South Africa has long respected the Russian Federation and before that, the Soviet Union for its anti-imperial stand towards the West. I have some more context to break down, and this is according to Al Jazeera. And this is just one example of what I'm talking about. The USSR provided funding and paramilitary training to liberation movements that ultimately became the African National Congress. In Zimbabwe, this is another example, it supported the African National Union Patriotic Front when the party fought a settler Rhodesian government from the 1960s until independence in 1980. And in Gola, um, it provided military support from the 1960s until independence from Portugal in 1975 at the height of the Cold War. This again, according to Al Jazeera. So basically when Europe and the US failed to sanction apartheid South Africa for its treatment of black people in a timely and appropriate manner, the USSR was viewed as an ally. Whether they were sincere in wanting black liberation or not and wanting black people to be free is another subject for another segment and another podcast episode, which I'm more than happy to break down. But we're not talking about that right now. I'm just really dealing with the sentiment of why you have this delay from South Africa and a lot of other countries in supporting Ukraine in ways that I would hope that they would. So I'm, here's another example. After he was released from prison in 1990, Nelson Mandela, who ultimately became the president of South Africa, he was basically asked during a um, dur during a public event why he supported Yarosir Arafat, who was the head of the Palestinian Authority, and Muammar Gaddafi, who was the head of Libya. And I want to play some video of Mandela's response because it gives you a lot of context about how so many people, not only in South Africa, but across the continent, uh, feel towards Ukraine. And so we're going to play that right now. Let us move on to our next questioner at the microphone over there. Mr. Welcome to America, Mr. Mandela. I'm Ken Edelman. Those of us who share your struggle for human rights and against apartheid have been somewhat disappointed by the models of human rights that you have held up since being released in jail. You've met over the last six months three times with Yasser Arafat, who you have praised. You have told Gaddafi that you share the view on, and applaud him on his record of human rights and his drive for freedom and peace around the world. And you have praised Fidel Castro as a leader of human rights and said that Cuba was one of the countries that's head and shoulders above all other countries in human rights, despite the fact that documents of the United Nations and elsewhere show that Cuba is one of the worst. I was just wondering, are these your models of leaders of human rights? And if so, would you want a Gaddafi or an Arafat or a Castro to be a future president of South Africa? One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. 
that we can and we will never do. We have our own struggle which we are conducting. We are grateful to the world for supporting our struggle. But nevertheless, we are an independent organization with its own policy. And the attitude of every country towards our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle. To this day, there are many voices in South Africa who echo his sentiments. And I think that this is very important context because basically what, uh, you know, former president, uh, the late um, former president of South Africa, Mandela, was saying is that when you all fail to get your act together, um, these nations that he mentioned, they were for us. And of course, do they have their own human rights records? Uh, that that need to be criticized absolutely but you know what um so does america so does much of europe so i want to play another clip and this is from julius malema and he is the president and commander-in-chief of the economic freedom fighters it's a kind of marxist left um, um, party in south africa and so he has some comments about supporting putin's possible visit to the country and i'm going to play those right now we're not going to be told by these hypocrites of the International Criminal Court who know the real violators of human rights, who know the murderers of this world. That former uh, premier, uh, uh, prime minister of uh, Tony Blair admitted that they made a horrible mistake when it comes to Saddam Hussein, they've not been charged today. Bush is still there. They've not been charged till today. And then Obama killed Gaddafi. And then nothing has happened. We're here today with Libya being destroyed and unable to recover because of America. We know very well that where NATO gets involved, those are terrorists. We know very well where the U.S. says we are going in to uh, install peace. That place will never know peace as long as America has visited that place. So we don't want uh, ICC's hypocrisy to apply here in our country. Again, we all know that Julius Malema is not necessarily seen as a unifying voice in South Africa, but he does speak to the sentiment of many of his countrymen and women. The West has largely been responsible for much of the continent of Africa's downfall and its challenges that's happening right now and has done little to correct their own colonial foreign policy. We also know that Russia is no less a colonial power than the West. The USSR was nothing more than the 15 colonies. Russia colonized Siberia and much of the land east of Moscow. Hundreds of millions of people were colonial subjects of the Kremlin for hundreds of years. So again, Moscow is no better than Brussels or any other European state in this regard. So let's just keep it a buck. I see this as an opportunity for Ukraine, however. So 
And here's the challenge. It, it has to strike a balance between rallying support from the West for much needed aid while formulating a policy that respects the historical and contemporary grievances of much of the continent of Africa, especially the nations that often do not vote in favor of resolutions that recognize the genocide and other abuses carried out in Ukraine by Putin. This too is complicated as the Russian paramilitary group Wagner has a strong imprint on the continent is and is influencing the politics there. African nations are playing a very delicate balancing act for a wide range of reasons that are, again, too complex to explain in this segment, and I'll explain it later um, in another episode. And so another thing we have to consider is that going back to Nelson Mandela, your enemies don't have to be our enemies is something that we really have to deconstruct and understand the African perspective, because it's just one thing to say, well, we're fighting genocide and we need you to support us, which again, it should be that way. But until Ukraine is able to intellectually engage uh, these subjects in a meaningful way that resonates with a number of countries across the continent, um, you know, then they're not going to make any break. They're not going to make any leeway. So I, I want the takeaway to be that Ukraine has to figure out how to create a diplomatic package that counters that of Russia and fits the interests of the nations whose trust they want to earn. This is going to be tricky. Um, because uh, many of the nations that are Ukraine's biggest allies were once Africa's most brutal occupiers who have their own history of genocide that has not been accounted for. What is also true is that Ukraine and many African nations have a shared history of fighting genocidal occupiers. So there is something to build on. What that is, is something that Ukraine must figure out to counter the bad faith Russian diplomacy that the Kremlin utilizes on the continent. All right, guys, so let's get into some rare good news from the good old party, which is known as the bullshit, batshit crazy Republicans that are going mega shit crazy. So, um, you know, <laughs> after Republicans took over the House during the last midterm elections, there were fears that the more far-right elements of the GOP would weaken the party's resolve to support Ukraine. You, of course, have notorious nut jobs like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who were spouting bullshit like America First slogans and saying that the U.S. is a proxy war against Russia and that Ukraine is not the 51st state, you know, bullshit like that. So uh, many elected officials in both parties worried that the new MAGA members of Congress would push the GOP support away from Ukraine. But that really has not happened. And that was made clear when senior uh, Republican officials attended the Munich security uh, conference recently, and they reaffirmed their support for Ukraine. And most recently, uh, House leader uh, Kevin McCarthy responded to a Russian state reporter who tried to start some bullshit about the GOP not wanting to support Ukraine. So listen to that exchange right here. Yes, sir. Uh, Vyacheslav Tartakovsky, Ria Novosti, Russia. 
we know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? Okay, I'm not sure. The, the, the sound here is not good. Did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. And we will continue to support because the rest of the world sees it just as it is. Go ahead, House Speaker McCarthy with your punk ass. So look, I, <laughs> I, I really have a great deal of disdain for this man because I really am happy that he called out Russia and challenged that reporter uh, for not, uh, for basically trying to move this narrative into this notion that the Republicans in general don't, you know, that the Republicans in general don't support Ukraine because we all know they do. He talked about the children. He talked about the unnecessary killing of civilians and all these war crimes. And so that was a very reassuring statement from the House Speaker. Now, I wish he would have that same energy here at home for voter rights and for qualified immunity and for trans rights and for the abuses that his own party at the national and state and local level are leveling against the most marginalized communities. I wish that same energy that he has for supporting Ukraine, which I completely support, he would apply to his own country. But you know what? I think that's asking for a bit too much, but we got to celebrate the, 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 the good things while we can. So good job, House Speaker McCarthy. So Another thing to point out is that most polls show that the vast majority of Americans support uh, providing aid to Ukraine for as long as it takes, including the liberation of Crimea, which is internationally recognized as part of Ukraine, because it is. It's also important to note that Ukraine is under a lot of pressure to launch a successful counteroffensive, be it in the spring or summer or whenever. The West still has yet to provide Ukraine with much-needed long-range missiles, the attackums that you all keep hearing about that can strike deep behind enemy lines, or F-16s that are considered superior to uh, Moscow's fighter jets. However, Ukraine's Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov says that he's confident that modern fighter jets are forthcoming. We don't know where he's getting this information from. And look, they may surprise us in this current counteroffensive. So sometimes not knowing is a good thing because I think that when you're launching a counteroffensive against the enemy, we all don't have to know when it's coming. We just need to know the results. That's all we care about. All right. So moving on. Y'all know that I have a segment that deals with what's Kamala up to. And this is a response to all of these haters and all these disinformation bros and gals who say that Vice President Kamala Harris is not doing nothing. And so I've decided as a responsible journalist, I need to inform you all about what's going on with our current vice president. So I just want to focus on 
one particular thing that she's very uh, passionate about, which is reproductive rights and and choice for women. And y'all y'all know uh, those who've been following my journalism are keenly aware that I've interviewed um, Vice President Kamala Harris in her capacity as a candidate running for Senate and then as a senator. And I also interviewed her when she was uh, running for president. And so she's ultimately the VP now. So just want to let you know that and this is according to the Hilltop. This is the student newspaper at Howard University. H-U, you know. So all y'all, I ain't got to explain it. Y'all know what that means. She was there to talk about reproductive health and the importance of choice for black women. And so I'm just going to read something that she said. And she was saying basically, and I quote, to my fellow bison, when we talk about the role of the United States Supreme Court and all that it's supposed to be, and yet in our recent memory, the highest court in the land, Thurgood's Court, took a constitutional right that had been recognized from the people of America, from the women of America, Harris said. Um, Harris's speech comes 10 months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which made having an abortion a federal right for nearly 50 years. Um, and so currently, according to the Guffmacher Institute, 11 states, Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, and, and, and others, um, they've made getting an abortion illegal. And so she basically goes on to say that I'm deeply troubled and sad, sad to stand in front of power students and have this conversation we're having today where there are so there are so-called leaders who want you to bow down to them, to elect them, to praise them, to say they are strong when they are in the process of tearing down our freedoms. And Harris's speech heavily resonated with um, one particular junior student, um, political science student at Howard. Her name is Danae Sims. And she said, I love how her speech addressed how the same people who run for us to vote for them are alienating us in what they stand for. I believe a woman's decision uh, about her reproductive health belongs to her and her alone. Sims said, and I quote right on sis, you right on you are hundred percent correct about that. So I bring this up to say that you're, if you Google uh, vice president Kamala Harris's name, you're going to see a whole lot of people who say is vice president Harris, a liability for Joe Biden and her poll numbers are low. And so what does this mean for Joe Biden as he runs for president uh, going into 2024? So look, this is all propaganda bullshit. And let me tell you something about polls. And speaking as a journalist who uses polling in my own work, the numbers don't lie, but analytics do. Let me repeat that because I don't think y'all heard me or got that. Numbers never lie, but analytics do. What does that mean? It means that we can take numbers and present them however we wish. So there needs to be a degree of intellectual honesty and integrity in how we introduce subjects and themes to people. So... Kamala Harris, when she run, Kamala uh, Harris and, and Joe Biden, when they run as a team um, going into the 2024 race, the vast majority of black people, which is the most important voting bloc in America, they're going to vote for her. And it was black people that got her into office, uh, got, that got them into office in the first place, i.e. 
Georgia is a prime example. When people say, oh, Joe Biden won, won uh, Georgia, well, black people won Georgia, black activists want Georgia. So when you talk about poll, who are you talking about? I don't care what poll you find, the lion's share of black people when it comes to voting day, when it comes to early voting, are voting for Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden. And so when you hear these stories about what she ain't doing, you can literally go to the White House website and see all of the events that she is doing. And there's a schedule about what she's going to be doing a week ahead, a couple of weeks ahead. So it's just complete BS. I just want you all to become better informed about the news that's coming out. And you all also know that I've been very critical of candidate uh, Senator, then Senator Harris, for a wide range of subjects. I don't think that any politician is beyond reproach. And I think that it's fair to critique anyone's policies. But the analysis around Vice President Harris isn't about her politics. It isn't about the Biden administration, which she represents because she ain't president. It's about who she is. And that's what I have a problem with. And so I want to play um, a very poignant um, clip from the Correspondents' Dinner and the great comedian Roy Woods Jr. just put broke it down perfectly in ways that I can never do. So we're going to close out this segment with his commentary about, about Vice President Kamala Harris. Let's take a listen. But I think the most insulting scandal to fall to the feet of the Biden administration was placed at the feet of our Madam Vice President the scandal of what does Kamala do? <laughs> Which is a disrespectful question. That's a disrespectful question because nobody ever asked that question of the vice president until a woman got the job. I'm going to ask. I don't know what Mike Pence did. The only thing I know about Mike Pence is that he's really good at playing hide and seek at the Capitol. You gotta be crafty to catch Mike Pence in that Capitol, baby. He'd know all the nooks and crannies. <laughs> Don't put the camera on her on a Mike Pence joke. Don't do that. Don't be sad. They're trying to set you up, Madam Vice President. You see what they At the end of the day, as a vice president, the only thing, the only thing you got to do is just be better than Dick Cheney. That's the bar. Just be better than Dick Cheney. They made a documentary about Dick Cheney. Now, I don't know much about the job of vice president, but I do know if they can make a documentary about your time as vice president, you vice presidented incorrectly. <laughs> and if a VP's job is really just waiting to step in to save the country in case of emergency, then the job of vice president is a perfect job for a black woman. Shouldn't be, but it is. And whatever you do accomplish, whatever you do accomplish, all they're going to do is just give a man credit for it. Anything you do, oh, the immigration stuff, you done knocked out, you done got all this banking, and you got the internet down there, you done taken care of all this postpartum stuff, they're just going to give a man credit for what you've done. By the way, Mr. President, great job at being the first woman vice president <laughs> of color. I don't even know how you did that part. <laughs> so 
look, I think that Roy Wood Jr. And listen, we got to put in that junior because Negroes, if you say, if you don't say that junior or that senior behind that name, though, though that that's like a fighting no mission. So for everybody that ain't a part of the, 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 the black culture, know that when our parents name us junior or senior, you better put that junior and senior on it. See, I, I just have to add this because part of my job is to be a cultural diplomat and, the, you know, that's that's part of the foreign affairs thing. And so I got to teach you all about my people. But look, Roy Woods Jr. was was right on point with 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 uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. And so it's just it really important to keep in mind, because ultimately it's black women that put this uh, that that really keep Democrats in power. And that's statistically proven. And I think that with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, she does not weaken the Biden ticket, she enhances it. And we're gonna close out on that. We're rolling into our feature interview of the podcast. And I'm with my sister from another Mr. Rula Jabril. So I just wanna explain how dope she is. And we've been following each other on Twitter for a long time and I've always been wanting to talk with her. I visit her homeland, the Holy Land, uh, been to Palestine. But let, let me just tell you, just give you a little brief introduction into how dope Sister Girl is. So she is a visiting professor at the University of Miami where she teaches communications. Jabril served on the G7 Gender uh, Equity Advisory Council, a body relaunched by French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Jabril is, award, is an award-winning journalist and author and foreign policy expert who has received accolades for her groundbreaking work in Italy, the United States, and across the Middle East. In May 2017, she was enlisted to introduce former President Barack Obama at his first European public appearance since leaving office, at which he gave uh, at which she gave the keynote speech on food security and climate change at the Global Innovation Summit. Jabril is an on-air foreign policy expert. She appears frequently on CNN, MSNBC, Bloomberg, HBO, and NBC. She has written many op-eds for the New York Times and the Washington Post and Foreign Policy Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, Time Magazine. She wrote extensively about authoritarian regimes, and she also predicted Trump's victory in an article for the Washington Post in 2015 titled, Trump is America's Berlusconi. Look, I think every black person on earth who has any degree of consciousness predicted that Trump would win, but I'm going to talk with uh, Jabril about this. I am so honored that you are on my show, sis. How you doing? How are you? So good to be on with you. Yeah. So I, before we get into you and talking about Israel and your homeland, Palestine, I just want to do a mental health check. I do this with everybody. So we deal with all these heavy topics and it's all right here in the head and we don't talk about our mental health. So without politics on anything, really just how are you? Thank you. Uh, it's such a wonderful, thoughtful question. We're, we're often not asked how uh, how we are. I am uh, 
I am ready. I am um, like many people who understand the threat to our democratic system and the attacks on minorities. I am not going to sit back and let these neo-fascist, white supremacist uh, dictators and their allies, mercenaries and, and, and others basically control our lives. So I'm, yes, sometimes I have moments of despair, but I have moments of optimism. I have moments where I look at the landscape of younger generation who vote, who are uh, excited about politics, but also are motivated to stand up for what's right, not what's popular, what's right. I hear that you you brought up mercenary. And I think that when you think about white supremacy, it's like white supremacy has mercenaries, you know, people who are working at the will of the state. And another key thing, they don't have to be white. That's another thing. They ain't got to be white yeah, to be mercenaries. They have yeah, they have allies in, in uh, who believe that. Uh, I mean, one of their their main theme of these white supremacists, neo-Nazis, fascists, whatever, they always rely on a small fraction in the minorities to say they legitimize us. They basically, if they endorse our views, then we must not be as bad. I mean, uh, one of the sentences that I always look at when I when when we talk about Mussolini and the fascist regime in Italy, and it, one of you know one of the people uh, who he targeted. Basically, he targeted many people, minorities, Jews and, and gypsies and others and critics and, and, and his opposition, but also journalists, journalists and intellectuals. And, and uh, you know, part of the, the, the lesson that we learned from that era, that there is a lot of people who are complicit, who basically didn't care, who, uh, you know, cared maybe about their taxes, their other things. And people, until it touched them, personally, they really don't care about others. And this is this is the lesson that indifference to the threat to democracy and threats of white nationalism and, and white supremacy and neo-Nazi is a threat to all of us, not only to the LGBTQ, not only to black people, not only to Jews or to Muslims. It's a threat. It's an existential threat to all of us. And we must stand up when our brothers and sisters from another community are attacked because sooner or later, they will come for all of us. I totally agree with you on that. And that's the whole point of Black Diplomats. When I started Black Diplomats, people who were not Black thought that, oh, it was just a Black people. I'm like, no, it's yeah. really about us being at the table and being equal participants in how we can make our world a better place. And I think the power of Black Diplomats and the message behind your wording is that our liberation means your liberation. We all have to participate in each other's liberation. And being a black diplomat for me is really telling black folk that you have a right to be at the table and you have a right to decide how the world in which you live ought to, ought, ought, ought to go about. And so your words resonate with me. And what also resonates with me is my trip to Palestine and my trip to your old neighborhood in the yes. African quarter. And uh, that that African quarter that a lot of trolls on Twitter told me didn't exist. <laughs> but that but that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You did the same thing. In my eyes, too. And so I'm 
before we get into a lot of these kind of political topics that I know that you're a very that you have a great deal of expertise in, I'm just really fascinated about your 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 home and and where you grew up and how that informs the way that you view things. I went to the African Quarter. I went and I spoke to some of the neighbor some some of the residents there, and it had a really strong, profound impact on me, including the apartheid that a lot of people don't consider apartheid that I experienced. So I just want you to tell me about where you are from in that beautiful, rich community that I visited just more than a month ago. I'm so happy that you visited my neighborhood. It's the Afro-Palestinian neighborhood in the old city of Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. It is only a few meters from the Aqsa Mosque. It's a rich community that came and lived there for centuries. So it's our ancestors came and as pilgrims from Africa, they married Palestinian women, and they basically, uh, we are the offspring of that, you know, that beautiful community that came, came from Africa, and they came with a mission to visit the holy sites, and then they fell in love and decided to stay. So we are their children. And, but also, you know, uh, the fact that people were telling you it does not exist, they've been trying to cancel our existence for, for, decades, maybe for 55 years uh, since Israel occupied East Jerusalem. And, you know, one of the, the things that we have in common as two black people, whether and this is what I have in common with African-Americans who I believe their struggle is my struggle in my home. My father had the picture of Frederick Douglass because he was inspired by the story of a slave who ran away and became the most important intellectual of his time at the time. Um, my father was inspired, uh, like my entire family and community by, uh, you know, they were horrified by the story of, uh, you know, Emmett Till and the words of his mother, where she says, you know, I want people to see what they did to my boy after they tortured and murdered a 14 year old black boy because he looked at a woman the wrong way. And then she wanted to have an open casket. So I grew up in that amazing neighborhood, uh, very close to the Christian neighborhood, to the Armenians. So we grew up in a community that is multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious, which is vibrant, which is the, the heart of East Jerusalem, the heart of Jerusalem. It was not an exclusive, and it's not an exclusive city for one group or one ethnic group. It's a shared community. On the wall of Jerusalem, it's written the history of all of our humanity and ancestors, regardless where you came from. That wall, those walls are not there to exclude, are there to embrace and include. That's why my father who worked at the Aqsa Mosque, he would go to basically the church, the main church in Jerusalem, the key of the church are in the hand of, of a Muslim family and it's been in the hands entrusted in their hands and in their care for centuries because we share, because if one of us is safe, we're all safe. And if one of us is free, we're all free. The whole idea of a community in East Jerusalem was an idea of protection and respect and inclusion of others. So when Israel occupied East Jerusalem and tried to basically segregate and discriminate, the Palestinian African community was the most targeted, were the most visible as different, right? We're black. Um, and, and I remember, you know, my dad who, who was sick at a certain point, he had cancer and he had to go to do his therapy. And it was hard for him in the morning. Sometimes when we would go visit him to wake up and, 
and, and take us to schools. So we were a little bit late sometimes, especially after the weekend. We would spend the weekend with them. And I remember the police that was standing outside our home, our community, you know, our neighborhood. And you have always these, these group of soldiers, very well armed with, you know, Kalashnikovs, American weapons, American bullets. And they were standing there and they knew who we were. They saw us every single day. And yet they would ask my father every time, looking at this frail elderly man who clearly was struggling and fighting for his life. He had cancer and he has two young children, myself and my sister. And I remember they would take his, his ID, they would look at it for like, I don't know, minutes. And I start asking question, what's your name? So like in the name is written in the ID. And, and I will never forget the moment where I decided to be the activist I am, the moment where one of the soldiers who's, who seemed to have an accent as if he's not really born in, in Israel, it seems like to have a very specific accent that I could now identify as an accent of somebody who came from the United States. So basically he was an American citizen who came and decided to be to enroll in the Israeli army in a foreign country army and he dropped his ID on the floor it was a February it was a muddy rainy day and it, it was a deliberate attempt to humiliate my father so as a child I was standing there in fear of the soldiers a bigger man who was holding a weapon I feared for my life for my father but also I understood in his eyes the attempt, the desire to humiliate, degrade my father. So I immediately took the, I bent on the floor, took the ID, gave it to my father, said, dad, we're late. And that's a moment where I decided I'm not going to allow fear to control my life. And that's, uh, you know, also the N-word is usually used by the soldiers and the army, the race. Racism, the xenophobia, the, the, you know, sometimes they would stop me at, at the gate of the neighborhood and they would ask me, how can an Arab woman afford a bag like this? I'm like, and, and it's very often my answer is, well, you know, it's called IQ. When you're smart, you work hard and you buy whatever you want. And when you are, you know, when you have a low IQ, you do other works, but, uh, and then you become ignorant and racist. So every time I remember the kind of, you know, microaggressions, the racism, you know, they call us kushim, which means, you know, the N-word. And, and this, like, the attacks are consistent and constant because we are viewed as the enemy, as the others. And that's why, for me, it's jarring when I see Democrats in the United States who are fighting against racism and white supremacy here are willing to turn a blind eye to what a major ally of the United States is doing and how they are subjugating millions of people in the name of Jewish supremacy. Yeah, so right, Jewish supremacy. So let's go into that. So I when I I had never traveled to the Middle East until I visited Palestine and I was there with our friend Matt Doss and he told me before the trip that this is going to be traumatic. And I was like, eh, whatever, you know, I was, I've been covering the war in Ukraine and I've all, I was almost killed by a Russian fighter jet, like an airstrike. And I've seen people get killed. So I'm pretty heartened when it comes to these things, but there was something different about 
going through Jerusalem. You talk about this being a non-exclusive community, which it's, you know, very much so. However, the it felt like an occupation. Okay, because you it saw the yes it's not yeah and so you saw these israeli defense forces everywhere and i'm we are in new you know i'm in new york city and i'm used to the nypd being everywhere but there was a particular type of difference there in palestine everywhere you go you are checked people ask you for your id what was particularly unique in my situation is that when I was going through your neighborhood, for example, they let me, they didn't really bother me so much. They did bother the six foot five Matt Doss, this, this tall white man, right? They were like, who are you? But when I would go to certain areas, I would consider like Jewish or something like that. I would be ass. Um, but at the same time, people will look at me and say, you know, they, these Israeli defense force uh, 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 troops will look at me and say, okay, well, you don't look Arab, right? And so... What 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 that was very clear to me was that it it felt it felt even though I wasn't particularly targeted, I still felt humiliated. Right? It, it felt that way. That's the point to make people who look like us, who pray different, who uh, who belong to a different race and different ethnic group and different, you know who actually believe in democracy as a threat, as an enemy, as unsafe, and humiliate them on daily basis. I mean, my own daughter uh, doesn't want, like really doesn't want to go there anymore because in her own words, the place reeks of hate and violence. When she was a teenager, she was uh, body searched at the airport without my consent. She was 16 years old, uh, the, the whole, thing was humiliation. I believe under Donald Trump, after Donald Trump was elected, there was an amazing op-ed um, in, in the Atlantic where our colleague wrote, cruelty is the point. In Israel, cruelty and racism and humiliation and violence is the point. Adam and Sewer, by the way, that's Adam Sewer bug. who wrote that. Yes, it's not a bug, it's a feature. So one of the things that we need always to remind people also our American Jewish incredible citizens that when you look at Israel, would you ever accept that model in the United States? Would you ever accept Ben Veer? Would you ever accept a minister like Ben Veer, who's a minister of security, of national security basically, who've been convicted for terrorism and supporting terrorism, who the army did not want because he was too extreme. Now he is the head of he has, he was granted his own militia to basically go and terrorize and brutalize and murder Palestinians. What we're looking at, I, I, I mean, I fear there's a looming mass killing and looming, you know, genocide in our homeland. And I, I mean, it takes nothing at this point. You have ministers in this government, the Netanyahu government, who endorse genocide. Bingvir, Smotrich. I mean, Smotrich yesterday and multiple and multiple occasions, he said, yeah, we need to burn down these villages. We need to destroy these villages. We need to erase these Arab villages to prevent any continuity of any Palestinian territory. And 
he went on to basically being invited to the United States and he never said that. Imagine a Palestinian saying the same thing. Would, you, uh, would we ever accept that? Rightly so, no, never. Would we accept that kind of model to be, to be basically implemented in America, in Georgia, in Alabama, or in Washington DC? Never, because we repudiated that, that model that you know, white supremacists tried to impose on the United States. People died. So we can be granted the freedom to live as we want, to love who we want, to pray as we want without being targeted for who we are. Right. So I want to talk about this because I think people confuse criticism of this genocide, this very real genocide that's taking place by the Israeli state with real issues of anti-Semitism that our Jewish brothers and sisters and non-conforming people are dealing with, right? There is a difference. And I think that you have been ha have been accused of this unfairly, and so have I, right? We both understand that there's a difference between the two. And I'm curious as to how you have been how have how have you really pushed back against that? Because it's just another way to silence the very real issues of, of genocide that you use your journalism to speak out against? Well, you know, if you want to silence the argument that Israel is committing human rights violation and accuse people like us of anti-Semitism, which is ridiculous, anti-Semitism is hating Jews for who they are, okay? And criticizing the state of Israel, the government, which we would criticize the Saudi government, the American government. Does it not make us anti-Muslim or anti-American? No, it's our duty to criticize any government. No government is above the law or above criticism. But also, if you want to apply that definition of anti-Semitism, whoever criticized the genocidal rhetoric of this Israeli government, then you need to call anti-Semites people like former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, Ehud Olmert. Uh, the former AG of Israel, who called Israel an apartheid state, said, sadly, I have to admit, it's an apartheid state. The many human rights organizations, including B'Tselem, uh, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Israeli ones, breaking the silence. So you're accusing a lot of Israelis who are protesting against the occupation and, and brutalization of Palestinians and against apartheid and calling them anti-Semites. They're Jews. They love the state. They want a thriving democracy in the state. Who is betraying the promise of the state, which actually in their Declaration of Independence of Israel, Israel basically wrote about granting equal rights for all the citizens, regardless their ethnicity, regardless their religion. So the Declaration of Independence, according to that definition of anti-Semitism, the founding father Israel, basically were anti-Semites? Are you applying the definition forever is trying to tell you that the Declaration of Independence of Israel, the founding father of Israel, who actually didn't, you know, didn't want a constitution because they wanted more freedom to, you know, reshape a state, but at least the promise, the initial promise was a promise rooted in democracy. So if you're telling me that anybody that challenges those genocidal views and rhetoric and policies that are basically policies of, you know, carnage and death are anti-Semites. I mean, this actually undermines the real battle of against anti-Semitism. Anti-Semite people who are the one that march in Charlottesville saying blood and soil Jews will not replace us. You cannot compare us to people 
who are calling Jews will not replace us blood and soil by saying, I want democracy, I want equality and human rights. These are two separate things and must be fought on a different level. I, I actually feel terrible because I believe in the fight against hate against all minorities. As a Muslim, as a mother of a girl who is Christian, I, I mean, we come from a multi-religious background we're not going to be silenced about our criticism of human rights violations and, and, and criticism of war crimes because, and be compared to people who march and kill people in synagogues. These are two separate things. And I think the conflation of the two things hurt the real fight against anti-Semitism. I solely agree. And so you remind me of the work that I do when I'm talking about the relationship between Ukraine, for example, and the continent of Africa, which is dealing with basically, um, you know, a, a heavy Russian influence on the continent. And you have a lot of African countries that are very kind of hesitant to support Ukraine. And what I do is I talk about this very, con I talk about the nuance, basically, um, you know, we all know that Putin is committing genocide against Ukraine. We know that he he wants Ukrainians to die. He looks at Ukrainians like white trash, and I use that because that, that term because Americans understand white trash. That's how Putin views Ukrainians. On the other hand, what I try to tell my Ukrainian brothers and sisters, and and, and you know across the community, is that Europe, which is rightfully supporting you, has long been the occupiers, the colonizers, the genociders of the continent of Africa, and so. The analysis that you need and the diplomacy package that you have to develop has to be something that recognizes that. So, uh, you know, so the work that we both do, we want all systems of oppression to fall. And in order yes. to do that, we have we, we have to recognize our privilege and our positionality in all of these subjects in order to make a better world. And that's going to require in some instances, a little of discomfort, which I think is very healthy. If we go down that right, go down that road properly, you mentioned something very particular about the white supremacy of the United States, for example, which we all know all too well. I want to play a, a, a clip from a recent interview from MS from, from NBC where, uh, where, where, where Prime Minister um, Benjamin Netanyahu was asked about his support of Trump and what he felt about uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We're going to play that right now. It is well known that you're a staunch ally of former President Trump. He has uh, been on the attack against Governor DeSantis. Would you have a preference between, say, President DeSantis or President Trump? Uh, President Trump has been a great friend of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, as well, and he did great things for the state of Israel, like recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, uh, moving the embassy here, recognizing our sovereignty in the Golan Heights, walking out of the disastrous uh, Iran deal. I appreciate all of that. Uh, and he's a great friend. And uh, the other people, including uh, Governor DeSantis, are great friends of Israel. And uh, it's wonderful to have these good friends. Listen. You can go into Netanyahu, but Ron DeSantis has been a national leader in fighting against critical race theory, which essentially, you know, which critical race theory, for all those who don't know, basically is an analysis and talking about the structural 
systems of oppression, you know, about how racism is embedded in, in the structural inequity of the United States of America. And Ron De- and Governor Ron DeSantis just basically, he just wants to erase that at, you know, any conversation about that whatsoever. And he's been pretty successful with that in the state of Florida, where a lot of lessons about racism and slavery and, and, and white supremacy are being wiped away from the history books. And then you have Donald Trump, who has a really good chance of winning in 2024, if we really want to keep it a buck, who is essentially is the king of white supremacy. And so, yeah. you know, and, and so when when you hear um, Netanyahu espouse his support of Trump, you being born and raised in Palestine and being black in Palestine, what do you think about those words? Well, I'm not surprised that Bibi uh, is willing to embrace the most, uh, you know, radical extremist, white supremacist elements. And l- let's be clear, uh, what Trump Trump stands for is fascism. Uh, you know, he's a twice impeached, indicted uh, former president who waged a war, who basically summoned his thugs to attack and launch an attack against the U.S. government. He he sent his people to uh, basically kill his vice president because he wouldn't comply with his demand to decertify or not certify the elections. He was willing to use political violence to assert and stay in assert his will and stay in power. Okay, so that's fascism. The fact that Bibi Netanyahu, the guy that came during President Obama, lobbied against his signature policy, the Iran deal, and wagged his finger in his face because Barack Obama was, first of all, black. Many ministers in Bibi Netanyahu government called him black and weak like coffee. They they used racist slurs against him. He's the most hated president in Israel and the most loved one is Trump. That tells you everything. The guy that launched basically an insurrection, instigated, fomented an insurrection against the US government is very loved in Israel. The guy that defended neo-Nazis after they killed a girl in Charlottesville, the guy that is continue to be a real threat to democracy, the guy that launched his political career by basically spewing conspiracy theories that Obama was not born in America. He must be not American. He's, he's, you know, he's from Kenya and elsewhere. It's the most racist, xenophobic elements and rhetoric. That's a guy that they love in Israel. That's a guy that Bibi Netanyahu think is a great ally of Israel. Are you kidding me? I mean, fine that he, he moved the embassy because for Bibi Netanyahu, what, what matters is power. And he's shown his face and basically he dropped the mask. And now he's trying to impose that kind of authoritarian system, bring it back and implement it on Israeli Jews by doing this reform in the Supreme Court. I mean, Israel is parliamentary system. The prime minister control basically the government and also the parliament. So there's two branches that he controls already. Israel doesn't have a constitution and he's trying to control also the Supreme Court. So whatever the Supreme Court decide, he can override their decision. This is not a democracy anymore. This is not a democracy. What he wants to import and implement in Israel is an autocratic system 
that we see very, you know, we see implemented in many places in the Arab world. It's an illiberal democracy. It's very close to Viktor Orban in Hungary, where you have no checks and balances. And the prime minister can be corrupt, can be indicted, can be basically, you know, uh, convicted. It does not matter because he will willing to use his power as prime minister to avoid accountability. Donald Trump is very similar. They share the same ideals and ideology, which is sheer power, use of violence to consolidate power, and in one case, white supremacy, in another case, Jewish supremacy, to basically draw a vision of who they are and the kind of civilization they want to enact and the kinds of systematic model and who the enemy are and target them. If Barack Obama was living in Palestine or in Israel, he would be considered the demographic threat that Bibi Netanyahu incite against every day. He would be considered enemy of the nation, of the state. He would be probably in jail or dead or probably segregated behind walls and in cages. He will be considered otherness and thus he will be considered the enemy and treated as such. You, wow, you dropped so many jewels in a, in a couple of minutes because when you talk about the Supreme Court, think about what's going on in our Supreme Court here in the United States of America with Clarence Thomas and that ProPublica report where you know he's pretty much at the behest of a billionaire. And so Trump appointed that and, you know, is it two or three Supreme Court justices during his presidency? And so what Netanyahu is doing in Israel, because let's face it, these democracy protests, you know, they're pushing against, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because Benjamin Netanyahu pretty much is trying to control the courts and so that he can maintain his power. And what Trump did, right, he 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 put, he stacked the court so high towards the right that he pretty much is developing you know going back to your point this same type of kleptocratic you know um 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 rule that netanyahu is working to do in israel now what's yeah. unique about your analysis though is that i i find it with people like you people really don't want to know the truth and, and i did a little research on you i did not know that you were a contributor to msnbc I, yes. I, I I really wasn't aware of that. And I did a little digging and I found an interview from some eight years ago between you and CNN's Brian Stelter, right? And you were talking about your contract. It basically was not renewed. And you talked about the bias in ways in which media, um, you know, pretty much have this very pro-Israeli narrative versus really talking about the Jewish supremacy that's taking place against Palestinians. And I want to play a clip of what you said to Brian in one uh, segment that I think is really informative. I think here there's fear, intimidation, a campaign of intimidation and fear of if you are not aligned, you're your motives are questions, and your questions if you are anti-Semitic or, or you are not yeah, enough pro-Israeli. And that intimidation comes from and, where? It comes and from And it, com it comes from multiple sources. Even if you question that, you are yourself questions and depicted as Palestinian. You and were pro an MSNBC contributor, though, under contract. Your contract expired last month, yes. which it seems like is just a coincidence from what happened last week. Uh, if there but is this imbalance, even. then 
doesn't your uh, your regular appearance on MSNBC show that that there are people like you being able to voice these issues? But you can't put me against Israeli official. I am, I am a journalist. And I criticize Hamas as much as I criticize the, the Palestinian authorities and others. My role is not to defend the Palestinian people. It's amazing that Brian was fired from CNN for trying to hold. I mean, like, it's, it's astonishing. The world is, is like a round world where Brian now uh, for challenging the lies and the propaganda of Trump and Trump Trumpism was basically put out of, of you know, CNN. It's incredible that CNN just announced that uh, Trump will be doing a town hall on their platform. So they're platforming a guy that lies and spew propaganda and conspiracy theories and incite against journalists. He called the media enemy of the people five days after five five reporters were killed at the Gazette at the Maryland Gazette, uh, he actually last week he attacked physically uh, uh, an, an NBC reporter. Uh, again, uh, I, I think there's. I mean, when do we learn from the mistakes of 2016? When do we learn that holding powerful people accountable is the only way to to save democracy? When do we learn? I remember the sentence from uh, the head of uh, CBS where he said, Trump is bad for the country, for America, but he's good for CBS. No, he's not good for CBS. He's not good for a journalist. People die every time he opens his mouth. People are killed because his words radicalize uh, his base and, and people who are armed, who will use that as an incentive, an inspiration to go out and kill Muslims, journalists, black people, Latinos, and Jews. Uh, I am proud of my relationship with MSNBC today because guess what? I'm not a bait contributor, but I continue to appear because my colleagues who might not share my views on everything, but they understand the importance of having a different voice like mine on MSNBC. Um, I have a you know great relationship with, with Chris Hayes who continue to invite me and we continue to debate about the issues that we care about which is democracy, equality for all, what's happening around the Middle East, especially in countries that we consider allies that are recipient of $4 billion a year, like Israel. I had a conversation recently with Peter Beinhart on their platform. So I admire that we came a long way in understanding that we don't have all to think the same thing and, and be aligned on the same ideals and believe in the same, basically the same policies. But we respect each other's opinion that we're allowed to voice these criticism, whether it's on MSNBC and, or in, on CNN. I mean, last year, Jake Tapper invited me to speak about what's happening in Italy. And I appreciated that opportunity because I saw what's happening in Italy, especially after Lavrov, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Russia, went on national television and gave a 45-minute propaganda session where what he said was so outrageous. He said that Hitler was a Jew, that Zelensky is a, 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 an anti-Semite, that he was a neo-Nazi, and he was never challenged by the TV hosts. That network is owned by Berlusconi, who's Putin ally, who's today a junior partner in government. So the fact that Jake Tapper, who you know is, is a, an amazing journalist on CNN, who really does a remarkable work, is willing to invite somebody like me who has a very deep perspective in, in 
on, you know, on Italian authoritarianism, European authoritarianism, but also we might not disagree. We might disagree on other issues. For example, we might disagree on on hosting Donald Trump, but we respect each other enough and value each other's opinion, and we are both committed to defending democracy and equal rights for all, whether here at home and overseas. You are the reason why I name my show Black Diplomats. Everything that you just said, and I don't even think that you appreciated what you said, but you crystallize every reason why this is Black Diplomats and why you are here. As Black folk, every we have an analysis that is multifaceted. Just how you talked about Berlusconi, you talked about Putin, you talked about all of these intersections where all of these systems of oppression are connected. Yes. And so when when so so when you talk about MSNBC and in particular hosts having on someone like you, it's almost like you're saying, well, thank you for having you're not you're not saying this, but you're saying, well, I'm happy that they get it, right? Because yeah. what what's happening is that these people don't have the intellectual depth that you have. They don't have the multifaceted experience that you have to foresee like so many black folk in the United States and around the world could see that somebody like Donald Trump could be elected. One thing that black Americans, we like to say about, you know, whiteness in general is that we know you more than you know yourselves. We don't have a choice but to know you because that's for our survival. And that's what yeah. you're doing. You're but 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 what you're doing and what MSNBC and a lot of these platforms don't appreciate about you is that you looking out for yourself inevitably is looking out for everybody else. Listen, we're considered somehow, you know, our views are ahead of the time sometimes because when I predicted Trump victory in 2015, I was told by many colleagues that I don't understand America. I happen to understand it better than they did. Uh, when I, I predicted basically the January 6th attacks two months earlier, all the writings were on the wall. And again, I appreciate that our colleagues are, are stepping up and basically leading the fight for truth, for democracy, because without truth and without facts, we have no shared reality. There's no democracy. And I think the first signal of many authoritarian regimes when they try to control the narrative and try to distort facts and the truth. And you can see this in Italy clearly, you know, before you cited the Supreme Court. I mean, when you become a vehicle of corruption and extremist ideologies, because somehow right wingers decided that they need to co-opt you, they need to purchase you, bankroll you and buy you. And it's not only Clarice Thomas. I mean, we are discovering we never found out who paid Kavanaugh's debts. We never found out who really bankrolled his ascension to the Supreme Court, regardless of all the accusation of, you know, sexual assault. We never, and now we discovered that also Neil Gorsuch also had his own case of corruption, and he never disclosed who he, who he sold his house to 15 days out after he was nominated. I mean, this is brazen corruption in broad daylight, and, and, the, and the Republicans are telling us it doesn't matter because they're giving, they're delivering on our policies and extremist ideologies. And Republicans are the same people who are using the Supreme Court to advance the most racist, xenophobic, 
dangerous laws against the most vulnerable communities, whether in Florida and, and, and Ohio. And, and like, it is scary. It is really scary. And the Supreme Court at this point is hijacked completely by billionaires who could not control how we vote, but they're willing to control how they vote. And they're willing to basically, this is what happens in Russia. When you don't hold accountable leaders, they become so emboldened and corruption becomes so normalized. I mean, the fact that Alito is so outraged by the criticism of the public opinion, Alito needs to understand that his legitimacy derives from the public opinion, that his loyalty should not be with billionaires and with extremists. His loyalty should be with American people, the hundreds of millions that depend on him to save democracy and to basically implement the constitution and not his own ideology. And, and when we look back at how this is becoming an inspiration to far right politicians in Europe, look at what the Italian are doing when it comes to the LGBTQ, you know, the kind of laws that are discriminatory against children and the attack on women reproductive rights. Guess what? That comes here, from here. They're basically importing that extremist ideology and implementing it in Italy. The difference between America and Italy, that here we have a robust media system that's willing to hold people accountable and expose them. In Italy, it's all controlled by the government. So the government controlled you know, state television, Berlusconi controlled the other networks, and there's one tiny TV network that tries to do independent stuff. But the moment I knew the far right will win in Italy, it's when I understood, and it didn't start with the far right ideas. It started with the war on Ukraine. The war on Ukraine, where you could see conspiracy theorists, pro-Putin conspiracy, giving basically so much time and airtime and coverage back to back, interviews without anybody that challenged their lies and propaganda. This is when I knew that when you create a system where people kind of differentiate between facts and fictions, truth and lies, guess what? Who benefits from that? Neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, white supremacists, all the extremist people are willish, willing to push the envelope to the next level. The prime minister herself, Meloni, is a conspiracy theorist. She promoted the great replacement conspiracy theory on video on multiple occasions. And she even pointed to Soros and, you know, the Jewish billionaire and pointed to the European Union saying that they're trying to impose on Italy a new, basically open the door for an invasion of immigrants, people who look like you and me, to basically ethnically substitute Italians or have basically slaves who with low wages can work and do and take away the work of Italians. I mean, the woman is suing me. She said that she never said these things, that she needs me to tell a judge when she said that. When we have eight, nine videos of her on video repeating the great replacement conspiracy theory, she knows she said those things. But what she's trying to do is intimidate the only, the only Muslim black journalist ever in the Italian media and send a signal to everybody else. This is what we will do to you if you ever dare to criticize us. We will take you to the court. We'll weaponize the ju judiciary. We will basically unleash our followers to harass you 
and signal that, yeah, that's the demographic threat. Those are the enemy. The kind of threats I got after she declared she's going to sue me, Tara, I never had those kind of threats, not even in America when I criticized Donald Trump or I wrote against MBS who killed a journalist. The kind of venom and violence and hate, and it was driven not only by her you know, announcement that she's going to sue me, by a series of articles on far-right publications, some of them owned by Berlusconi, her junior partner, depicting me as a murderer, a murderer, an Islamist, a Taliban, a terrorist, a radical, and then deranged out of my mind, feminist, anti-racist activist. And these are the compliments. I mean, and other things that I cannot even, you know, I will not say here on air, but the kind of concerted effort of incitement and attacks are meant to send a signal to every journalist, we will come after you if you dare to criticize us. And now that I see how she's garnering with propaganda, she cannot deliver on her economic promises, but all she can do point out to her people who the enemy are. And it starts with journalists, it starts with propaganda, and it starts with depicting the opposition as the enemy, and above all, enemy of the nation. She's taking Trump rhetoric to the next level. It's not anymore only the media the enemy. It's the opposition and anybody that dares to criticize her. So again, I will appear before the judge. I will show him the video. And hopefully the judge will understand that there's no case there. And regardless, it's, it's, I think it's an intimidation tactic. If she was in the United States, I would be entitled to sue her for intimidation. Sadly, Italy doesn't have those laws. I would be entitled to sue her or do a slap suit because she is actively, deliberately trying to intimidate journalists. And I want to listen, when I listen to you, and this is, you you will not be defeated. You will not be intimidated. You haven't been intimidated ever. ever. You remind me of Ida B. Wells. You remind me of all the Black women who have, have stood for anything in America and around the world and all the attacks that you have experienced. It's just a tradition, really, of people who stand for righteousness, which is what you are doing. And so I know that this road that you're going down is very challenging and stressful and people are trying to break your spirit, but they won't do it because we won't allow them to break you. We will be there holding you in arms. We will be together with you. This podcast is designed to center voices like you where you're unfiltered, where we don't have to debate whether or not Jewish supremacy or Russian genocide or any kind of abuse from the state exists. We all know it does. We're here to hold you down. And yeah. you, because that's the way that black women across history have been held down. We got you, sis. We here for you. And we both are journalists who've been working in this field. And we don't believe in this objectivity. Objectivity is bullshit. We all know what righteousness is. We stand for it. And that's what you really do. And I'm really proud of you. And 
we've just been blessed for 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 close to an hour with your wisdom and you are in the media world of freedom fighter that's how i see you and we're going to do everything in our power from my audience perspective to make sure that the 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 voice of freedom is going to be heard loud and clear and unfiltered and i'm grateful for you being on black diplomats you are one of the world's great diplomats and your diplomacy in the media world is very much valued and loved and respected and we're just grateful for it you know i am so grateful to be here on you with you and i just want to close by citing frederick Douglass that my father loved and, and adored and uh, the limit of tyrants are described by the endurance of those whom they oppress. They might oppress us, they might try to discriminate us against us, incite against us, but we will endure and we will fight back and we will stand up and we might fall sometimes, but we will gather our energy because we're not alone. We are together in this. This is a fight for our humanity and it's not for me or you or, or you know, anyone that is being oppressed in this moment and discriminated against, it's for all of us. Together, we will rise. And thank you again. And together, we shall rise. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please give us a five-star rating on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to the Black Diplomats podcast. And also support our work financially on Cash App at cash sign black diplomats venmo at black diplomats and on paypal at paypal me slash black diplomats so thank you very much for coming on um and thank you very much for tuning in this week and uh we'll see you all next week